Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. The characterization of major repeaters individuals with greater than or equal to five lifetime suicide attempts, is a neglected area of research. The authors of this continuing medical education offering aim to establish whether or not major repeaters are a distinctive suicidal phenotype characterized by a distinctive sociodemographic and clinical profile. In this cross-sectional study of 372 suicide attempters admitted to a specialized unit, the authors found that major repeaters were more likely to be diagnosed with some type of childhood maltreatment, and that there appears to be some gradient. The greater the number of different types of abuse or neglect, the higher the likelihood of being diagnosed as a major repeater. Furthermore, When compared with subjects who attempted suicide less than five times, major repeaters were more likely to be female, to have lower education levels, to have lifetime diagnoses of anorexia nervosa or substance dependence, and to have higher suicide risk. Interestingly, they also displayed higher levels of trait anger, but lower levels of anger expression out. In other words, they could not externalize their elevated anger. Although speculative, it is possible that the elevated anger that cannot be expressed out is rooted in childhood abuse and neglect. The authors suggest that their results could be interpreted as lending some support to the addictive hypothesis of suicidal behavior. Specific preventive plans should be tailored to major repeaters. This research was supported by grants from CHU Montpelier and National Research Agency. Despite primary care physicians providing a large volume of care to psychiatric patients, most primary care residency training programs provide little or no formal instruction in psychiatry. This survey study was designed to gather anonymous information about primary care and internal medicine residence demographics, training, comfort levels seeing patients with mental illness, basic psychiatric knowledge, and attitudes towards mental health professionals. Surveys were sent via email to internal and family medicine residents at two teaching hospitals in southwest Virginia. Half of the respondents reported feeling comfortable treating patients with psychiatric illness only 25% of the time. The internal medicine residents who had a one-month rotation in psychiatry reported a minor increase in comfort level treating psychiatric patients compared to those who did not have a psychiatric rotation, but no increase in the reported desire to see psychiatric patients in their future practice. When asked for their preference to see mental health patients in their future practice, 60% of respondents reported the preference to see fewer, 
30% reported the preference to see no mental health patients, and 10% reported no preference. A positive correlation was found between the training level of residents and their belief about the percentage of mental health providers who have mental health problems. The current training model to acclimate primary care residents to the field of mental health appears to have major limitations, especially with regard to their reported comfort in treating patients with psychiatric illness and their attitude towards psychiatric patients and mental health professionals. It is concerning that the study showed an increase in negative perceptions of mental health professionals among primary care residents with increasing level of training. The authors suggest that this finding could be explained by multiple factors that should be further investigated. Increasing exposure of trainees to psychiatric treatment during primary care residency training should lead to strengthened communication between primary care physicians and mental health providers while improving the care provided for patients with mental illness. Lumbar radiculopathy, sometimes called sciatica, is a common cause of nerve pain in the legs and sometimes can be quite severe. The syndrome is caused by injury or irritation to the nerve roots exiting the spinal cord in the low back area, usually from bulging or rupture of the intervertebral discs. Typically, afflicted patients also suffer from low back pain. Surprisingly, very little research has been done on how to treat this disabling condition with medication. This study by Marks and colleagues compares the pain-relieving effects of the serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake-inhibiting drug milnasopran to that of placebo in patients with leg pain from lumbar radiculopathy. Nerve pain in the legs was studied in addition to tissue pain in the lumbar spine. Although this study was small and results should be interpreted cautiously, the data are promising in that milnasopran led to superior improvement in both nerve pain in the legs and tissue pain in the lumbar spine compared to placebo. It is the author's hope that these results can be confirmed with larger studies of patients suffering from lumbar radicular pain. This study was supported by an investigator-initiated grant from Forest Laboratories. Have you ever wondered how closely your patient's viewpoint on bipolar disorder treatment is when compared to the evidence base? Have you ever considered the unmet needs in the treatment of bipolar disorder? These are the questions Massand and Tracy aim to address in a 14-question online survey. Through online recruitment, 469 respondents shared their views. The authors found that most patients were taking, on average, three or more medications, with their biggest side effect concern being that of weight gain, both for anticonvulsants and antipsychotics. Patients felt that their biggest unmet need was the effective treatment of bipolar depression with relapse prevention, and treatment access and affordability also were major concerns. When asked about specific medications, patients' opinions on effectiveness did not align with the available evidence base. 
The authors review influences on consumer opinion, such as the impact of marketing, including direct-to-consumer marketing. Additional research on acenapine for bipolar depression is suggested based on consumer impression that it is the second most effective agent in treating bipolar depression, in spite of the fact that it is not approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for this purpose. It is clear that there are a number of serious unmet needs in the treatment of bipolar disorder, and patient perspectives on treatment do not match the evidence. In order to create better outcomes, consumer and clinician education is needed in regard to evidence-based treatment. Premature ejaculation is one of the most common forms of male sexual dysfunction and is often classified into primary and secondary types. Recently, a more elaborate classification of premature ejaculation into four subtypes, lifelong, acquired, natural, variable, and premature-like, was proposed. According to this classification, the acquired subtype may be caused by endocrine, urological, or psychological factors. This study examined the case records of 28 male outpatients who presented to a psychosexual disorder clinic with a primary complaint of rapid ejaculation. The lifelong and acquired subtypes of primary ejaculation were the most frequent. The authors found that anxiety related to sexual performance was significantly related to the acquired subtype of primary ejaculation. Given the established relationship between anxiety and sexual dysfunction, it is possible that anxiety is an important causative or aggravating factor in men with acquired primary ejaculation. Thus, the authors suggest that pharmacologic or psychosocial interventions aimed at lowering performance anxiety may be effective modes of treatment for acquired premature ejaculation. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder manifests as abnormal somatic, emotional, and behavioral symptoms on the eve of menstruation and occurs in 3% to 5% of women. In addition to the biological parameters and the etiology of premenstrual dysphoric disorder, women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder have been reported to have higher rates of abuse history than healthy controls. The aim of this study was to evaluate whether there is an increased abuse history in patients with premenstrual dysphoric disorder and to clarify the characteristics of the abuse in women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder in Turkey. Seventy women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder and 78 healthy female controls were compared in terms of sociodemographic, familial, and reproductive period characteristics and childhood trauma. A family history of premenstrual dysphoric disorder, a history of postpartum psychiatric disorders, and a history of attempted suicide were higher in the patient group compared with the healthy control group. Childhood trauma questionnaire total scores and subscale scores, including emotional abuse and emotional neglect, physical abuse and sexual abuse, were found to be higher in the premenstrual dysphoric disorder group compared with the healthy 
control group. To the author's knowledge, the present study is the first to investigate associations between premenstrual dysphoric disorder and childhood abuse in Turkey. Further studies are needed to enrich the literature and to enable practitioners to be more effective in clinical practice. Physical diseases are difficult to treat in psychiatric patients, whether they are comorbid disorders or mental disorders due to a general medical condition. The psychiatric symptoms are difficult to treat in a medical ward or clinic, and the physical symptoms are difficult to treat in a psychiatric ward or clinic. For this reason, medical psychiatric units have been developed but remain uncommon. It has been suggested that assertive community treatment teams are a way in which to integrate medical and psychiatric treatments. In this article, the authors review the case of a woman with psychiatric symptoms caused by Graves' disease that went untreated due to medication noncompliance and unmanageable irritability, that is, unmanageable irritability, aggression, and mood variability. This patient was treated by the multidisciplinary assertive community treatment team. In this case, the team provided specialized behavioral health treatment, integrated treatment such as substance abuse groups, family planning, and medical referrals, and continuity of care throughout her hospitalizations and outpatient visits. The authors provide support for the use of the assertive community treatment team in the treatment of patients with mental disorders due to a general medical condition when the psychiatric manifestations are severe and cannot be managed in a medical ward or clinic. Attitudes and beliefs of patients and family members can complicate the diagnosis and treatment of ADHD. When the caregiver and patient come from different cultures, the challenge can be even greater. Conversely, the therapeutic relationship can be facilitated by the caregiver understanding and adapting to the patient's cultural norms. This article by Bailey and colleagues offers practical guidance to primary care providers on the barriers to care faced by African American and Hispanic minorities with ADHD from two perspectives, a review of the published literature on barriers to care for minority patients, and the author's personal experiences in overcoming such barriers to improve diagnosis and treatment. The author suggests that primary care clinicians should seek to become more aware of cultural factors that could interfere with the recognition and management of ADHD, with an emphasis on understanding how societal norms for behavior can vary on the basis of culture. Culture-related barriers can affect all stages of patient care, starting with awareness and recognition, which are influenced by extended family, friends, and neighbors, and proceeding through stages of evaluation, diagnosis, treatment, and compliance. Barriers that can affect clinical outcomes in ADHD for ethnic minorities include poor access to medical care and lack of insurance, negative attitudes towards mental health conditions, and poor physician-patient communication due to lack of rapport and or language difficulties. 
Shire Development LLC provided funding to complete healthcare communications for support in writing and editing this manuscript. Vitamin deficiencies are poorly recognized in Western populations. Inadequate intake of these micronutrients and low levels when measured are more frequent than expected. Cases of combined vitamin deficiencies, such as that of ascorbic acid and thiamine, are seldom reported. In this article, two patients with clinical and biochemical evidence of vitamin deficiencies are described. Signs and symptoms rapidly responded to vitamin replacement. Neither patient was overtly malnourished, but nutritional histories and physical examination were strongly suggestive. The author emphasizes that vitamin replacement may require large intravenous doses, but is inexpensive and potentially of great benefit. Have you ever wondered whether your patients truly understand the consequences of their substance abuse and use? Have you ever been amazed by their seeming lack of insight into their situation or their apparent inability to alter their behavior? Have you ever wondered how you could improve their adherence to health-promoting activities to prevent morbidity and mortality? If you have, then the case of Mr. A, a 51-year-old former musician with chronic alcoholism and multiple inpatient rehabilitation stays for addiction counseling and desoxification, as well as depression, hypertension, chronic back pain, and migraines, should prove useful. The authors of this issue's rounds in the General Hospital offering discuss pharmacologic, affective behavioral, and cognitive interventions for alcohol use disorders and provide guidelines for physicians when treating these patients. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings and the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, as well as timely case reports a new entry in our Psychotherapy Casebook section, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, Your Place for CNS Soundbites.